Welcome this morning. So those of you who heard the prayer there, my wife has been dealing with some vertigo and stuff this week. Been a long, rough week for the Johnson crew. So if I feel a little tired, I'm tired. So we have five kids, been running around with them all week, had great help from the church, some meals, and the church has loved us well. And uh, Ben, you can keep praying. We're, we're, we're trying to figure it out. So we were at the ER till three o'clock on Monday morning. So it was a long week. Um, so she's, she's home. Love you, honey. If you're watching, she's home somewhere there or there. Um, so, uh, all right, glad to have you with us. Uh, again, my name is Brett Johnson. I'm lead pastor here, and we're preaching our way through John. This is the last Sunday in John. This is the last week. Part of why I wanted to preach was it's the last week in John. I didn't want to miss uh, this text, and I, I wanted to be nourished myself from the, from the text this week to give me something to dive into. So, we often start with our question, right? Get our brains going. Here's, here's a question. This is kind of an intense question, which fits for our text today. Uh, when have you really failed someone? Fun thing to think about. Like, when's the last time you, like, really disappointed somebody? You know, that feeling of, like, you, you, you're trying to do something or you forget to do something or someone expected something of you and they were really disappointed with you, right? And I don't just mean, like, you know, you forgot to, like, switch the laundry or... But like really, really disappointed someone. Or, or the other side of that, you could go the other way with that. Like when was the last time someone really disappointed you, right? Like, and so my question is, after that happens, like what then took place, right? So there was some sort of failure, some sort of uh, betrayal, some sort of disappointment in some major way. What did moving forward look like? Because sometimes these massive disappointments I mean, it kind of is like the end of a relationship sometimes, right? Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at this in John chapter 21, the last chapter, John 21. Let me pray for us, and then let me set the stage for what we are getting into this morning after I pray. Um, I'm praying, I mean, you know, might help you guys. I'm praying for me right now, so this will be good. I'm praying for myself. I need some prayer here. So I'll pray, and then we'll dive into John 21 after I set the stage. Heavenly Father, we, we do need from you this morning uh, when we find our own lives filled with disappointments and weaknesses and sadnesses, uh, it reminds us of our need for you and how much we are unable in our own strength even to manage our own schedules, our own physical health, uh, how little our ability is to keep things moving without you. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that. And Lord, would you come this morning, have your way in me, through me? Would I be even nourished by my own words this morning? Uh, I need you to preach to me this morning, Lord, I pray. Uh, by your power, by your word, by your spirit, uh, have your way in us as a people this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in John 21, and I want to remind us that, so back in John 18, we have this Peter's denial of Jesus, right, where he's there and he's around this charcoal fire, and we had uh, Michael Worrell preach the sermon, great sermon on, on Peter's denial, where he is, he is there basically in somehow in the kind of compound where Jesus is being held, and in one of the other gospel accounts, after the rooster crows, there's, a, there's a, an exchange of looks between Jesus and Peter where they both realize what exactly Peter has done. Even though Jesus had foretold Peter that he would do it, Peter was like, no, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to deny you. I would never do that. Come on, Jesus, a little more credit than that. And yet, that's exactly what happens. 
He's with a bunch of Roman soldiers. He's a bunch of, with a bunch of leaders, people of, of influence, whoever they are around this charcoal fire. And Peter is not willing to own that he and Jesus are close, right? That he follows after Jesus, that he is connected to him. He denies Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm guessing, so part of why I ask about the disappointment thing is most of us are not going to face the kind of denial that Peter and Jesus dealt with. Like, I can't even imagine having like Neil or one of my really good friends and, and actually watching him deny connection to me. Like, that would be way worse than just a disappointment. I'd be like, Neil, bro, what? God, I mean, come on, we're boys. And he'd be like, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. You know, like, you, Brett Johnson, you work with Brett Johnson, right? No, no, I don't. I'm not sure why you're asking. I can think of a lot of reasons, <laughs> but no, I don't. I'm, yeah, nope. Valley, no, I work at Valley Baptist Church. I work, you know, somewhere else, right? So, um, I, so I can't imagine that kind of like intensity of denial. Imagine the shame that Peter is dealing with. And so this is all happening in chapter 18, which is before the crucifixion happens. So I'm trying to set the stage for what we're about to get into. You have to imagine what's happened. Peter has denied his best friend, his, his Lord, his Messiah, his teacher, his, I mean, the whole, throw in any word that you want to throw in. Peter has denied the person most important to him. He's betrayed him. And then he doesn't get to like make good with Jesus. Jesus goes and gets crucified with that kind of tension lying out there. The shame of Peter that he's been dealing with as Jesus is crucified. And actually, I was talking to one other church member this week, and he made the interesting note, right? We had that little uh, anecdotal information about Peter and John racing to the tomb. And Peter, who's always first at everything, Mr. Chomping at the Bit, Peter gets outrun by John. Again, it may, it may mean nothing, but it is interesting. Peter, the guy who's always ready to strike the picture that the church member offered, which I loved, was maybe Peter was a little bit slower because Peter had some stuff he was working through, going like, well, I'm just going to kind of jog to the tomb because, man, I've denied my king. You know, maybe he's a little less excited, a little bit nervous. And so before this, according to the accounts we have, Peter has probably already seen Jesus. So, so, here, so, so Peter's denied Jesus, the crucifixion happens, the resurrection happens. So here's Jesus, who's resurrected from the dead, and now he is coming to this last chapter, the last chapter of John. John is wrapping up his account of the resurrection of the King of Kings, of Jesus, God in the flesh, raising from the dead and changing all of human history. We're, we're closing the account of that, and what do we have but this account, this kind of strange breakfast on the shore? So let me read for us. I want to set the stage so that we remember what's going on. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one through whom all creation is made, the one to whom all of creation points, has risen from the dead. All of human history has changed, and we get this account, right? Because there's, I would say there's two layers of this passage. There's, there's this kingdom layer, right? This, this cataclysmic, colossal, cosmic thing going on where the resurrection has taken place. But then there's this other personal thing. And I do want to point out before we get into the text, note that those really aren't two things. The kingdom is inherently this relational reality, right? What, what gets us entrance into the kingdom of God? It's a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus. 
And so what kind of work does he do? What kind of kingdom does he operate? Think about his exchange with Pilate. I do not have a kingdom of this world. I have a different kind of kingdom. And hence we have John 21. Let me read for us verses 1 through 14. And then we'll see kind of, uh, last week we talked about uh, Jesus' resurrection actions. We're doing three more resurrection actions this morning of Jesus. This is John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. This is the Peter we know. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We'll pause right there. So the first thing that we are going to see this morning, the resurrection actions, the first thing is he reminds. Jesus reminds. Jesus, if you go and and you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, one of the words you're going to see a ton of is the word remember. Remember. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember who he is, and he reminds. So if if any of you have read any of the other gospel accounts, I think this specific account in John gives us a little clue that John is expecting that you are reading the other gospel accounts coming into the gospel of John, that John is offering supplemental information. He is offering specific nuggets. There's a lot of content in John that's not included in the other gospels. Why? Because John has assumed that you have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so when you open John, he's saying, I'm going to give you some extra pieces that you didn't know. And he is, John is writing this account probably later than the other accounts saying, hey, I want to fill in some details that you guys don't have. And this helps us because if you go read the account in Luke chapter five, you'll see an almost identical account. Jesus is reminding Peter and the other disciples 
He's reminding them of his initial call, his initial call to them that they would follow after him. He is reminding them and pointing them back to, do not forget that I came and called you. Long before the miracles and the crucifixion and all the other things, remember, fellas, remember in Luke 5, I said, come and follow me. And you go read the story in Luke 5 and you see this almost identical account, which is why they recognize immediately after he says, no, 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 don't throw your nets over there. You fished all night and didn't catch anything? No, no, throw your nets over here. And you go read Luke 5 and you go, oh, that's exactly what happened in Luke 5. The same notes, they had fished all night, they caught nothing, and so they're tired and they don't want to fish anymore and they say, no, no, hey, throw your nets on the other side. And they're like, look, man, we know how to fish, okay? We did that already, it didn't work. And then Jesus goes, just trust me, throw your nets in. He's like, all right, I will. And the same result happens. He is reminding them of what he has already done, that Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one born of a virgin, the one who came to take away the sin of the world, this Jesus came to these lowly nobodies. Nobody was scouring the fishing fleet for faithful religious teachers, for future church leaders. Nobody else was doing this. These are a ragtag group of guys who are there doing their trade. I love the little nugget in here where everything has happened so far. Jesus even appeared to them, and the disciples are a little bit like wondering what they're going to do. And what does Peter say? He goes, you know what? I'm going fishing. I know how to fish. I know how to do that. This is familiar to me. I'm going to go do it. I think we have to be careful about putting too much meaning on the, like, is he like abandoning God's call because God had told them, Jesus had told them to wait, you know, for him to send power from on high and to not run off. But we, we don't really know. We're not totally sure about the timing, but we know that Peter was familiar with fishing. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And so they go and they go do this thing that they all know how to do. And they're doing something familiar. And Jesus reminds them exactly who he is and exactly his pursuit of them. So he reminds. Again, look the note on uh, Luke 5, where constantly Jesus is wanting them to remember, to remember who he is. So the first thing he does is he reminds. He's calling us to be a people who have a good memory. When uh, vertigo hits, right, we need to remember who we are, whose we are, where we come from. And let me tell you, you know, four or five days with no sleep and four or five days where your beloved is not well, uh, is a, is, it's an easy thing to kind of erase, right? Some memory. You start to worry and wonder. You start to worry and wonder about how things are going to go. And yet he is saying, remember, remember who you are as you dive into John 21 and read about my faithfulness to the, to the nobodies of this world. Remember that I see you. So, reminds us, that's the first thing that Jesus does, is he reminds us. Look at verse 15 for our second section here. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, I used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So he, the first resurrection action is that he reminds. The second resurrection action is that he restores. I want you to think about this. You have Jesus. Jesus, who's resurrected, has a very short earthly ministry before he ascends to heaven. He has a very few amount of things that he's going to do. You have Peter who's denied Jesus before the crucifixion. The crucifixion happens. The resurrection happens. And, and, and Jesus on the cross says what phrase? In John, he, he stands up and he says what? He says, it is finished. It is finished. The work of redemption accomplished. The work of, of paying for the sin of the world taken care of. Hear me, church. If you're here this morning, you're checking out Jesus. No, on the cross, he paid for your sin. He paid for your and my sin, that we are people who need to have our sins washed. So he does this monumental bearing of our sins on the cross. And yet, he says it is finished. But it seems like here with Peter, it's not finished, does it? That's why we ask the question, when's the last time you disappointed someone? Because if it was at all in any way good or restorative, there was a conversation that happened after that disappointment where, where they came to you or you went to them, whoever initiated is kind of irrelevant, but you sit down and you say, I'm sorry, or they say, I'm sorry, forgive me. A little coaching on restoration and reconciliation, by the way, the term I'm sorry and the term forgive me are not the same thing. So if some of you need to reconcile, you need to take some notes. First thing you probably want to say is, I'm sorry, which means this. I understand I've done something against you. I see that I've done that. That's all you're saying when you say, I'm sorry. I know that I've hurt you. I'm hurt that I hurt you. That's what sorry says. But note, there's a lot left, a lot to be desired when you say, I'm sorry, so the person who just says, I'm sorry, in some ways, I mean, you know, it's understandable to be like, okay, like, that's good. I'm glad that you're upset and sad that you hurt me. What else? That's not the end of the conversation. We talk about restoration. So you have Jesus and Peter, right? So what happens is Jesus or Peter denies Jesus. And Jesus goes about, because we don't see any specific interactions of how their exchange happens, but imagine you're Peter. And Jesus is there, and he's resurrected from the dead, and you're excited that he's resurrected from the dead. You, you're ecstatic that your, your Jesus is back, and yet there's something left undone between them. This happens between us. As we sin against each other, and even as we work to reconcile, there's a conversation that needs to be had. I'm sorry, forgive me. And so what we see is we don't see Peter saying that. That's a pragmatic note for those of us here. What we do see is something very, very beautiful. We see Jesus, the one who's been denied, 
and basically been sinned against, who seeks out Peter and he sets the stage so that they can be restored. He does the heavy lifting. Right? Peter even gets annoyed. Right? He gets bothered that Jesus is going to these lengths. Do you love me? He says. Look at verse 15. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? You know that I love you, right? Tend my sheep. So a couple of things I want us to note here. The payment for what needs to happen between Peter and Jesus has already been paid. It was finished on the cross. Payment accepted. Payment paid in full. So the, 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 the need for the, the sin of Peter to be dealt with has already been dealt with, and yet there's still a restoration that needs to take place. So part of what we need to see here is that, listen, your sin is forgiven at Calvary, on the cross. Your sin, any sin that you have done, past, present, future, paid for in Jesus, that does not mean that there is not work of restoration and restoring that you need to do. You don't need to earn your salvation. That has been given to you by faith in Christ Jesus. But in order to restore relationship, that takes some work. When you sin against someone else, you can't just go, well, Jesus forgives me. They need to also. We're good. No. That's not how that works. When we sit down, when I've sinned against my brother, my brother sinned against me, when we sit down as brothers in Christ, we sit down with the acknowledgement, our sin, this sin has been dealt with in Christ. We have a, 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 a foundation and a back payment of grace that we, have, we are filled up with. We have a reservoir, that's the word I was looking for, a reservoir of grace to draw from. And so now we have this immense power of the gospel of Christ that now is our fuel and the, the actual substance that we can like correspond over and through that we bring to the table in reconciliation, which says the cross of Christ is able to deal with your sin against me and the cross of Christ is able to deal with my sin against you. And so we, we sit and we talk over fires, over fish. And there's work to be done. So as believers of the gospel, we have now freedom to acknowledge our own sin. I did this thing against you and I can own it. And we can look at it and go, I did this. I don't need to deny it anymore because that's been paid for. And I did it. So I can bring it to my brother and say, brother, I did this against you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It doesn't end there. This is where it gets messy. Because now the other person has to go, okay, do I accept? Will I receive? Will I forgive? You are basically forgiving a debt, which that debt has already been forgiven in Christ Jesus. This gets back into you know, what, what John will get into in 1 John, right? Where we talk about forgiving of sin, like I will forgive. How can I uh, not love my brother whom I can see? If I say that I love God whom I cannot see, how can I love God? Right? That, whole, that whole picture of I, it's hard for me to love God whom I can't see if I can't love my brother whom I can see. 
So if I'm not willing to forgive you who I can see, how, how is that exchange happening where Jesus is forgiving my sin? That wasn't as clean as I wanted it to be, but you get what I'm saying. I would have had a little more prep, right? There we go. I have a little equity here. Okay. So he reminds, but he restores. He restores. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in his limited earthly ministry, we're talking literally counted in days. He's not vanquishing Caesar. He's not raising some angelic army to go take over the kingdom of Rome. He doesn't do that. He is sitting at a breakfast on a seashore with some nobody fishermen restoring relationship with Peter. Do we see that the kingdom, the powerful kingdom of God brought to bear on this world is playing itself out in one-on-one conversations between people? This is kingdom work. God transforms countries through this kind of stuff. The story that came to mind was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These kind of nobodies, these kind of four nobodies. They're just servants in the kingdom, and they're interacting with the king. And he says, you need to do what I'm telling you to do, and if you don't, we're going to throw you in the fire. And all they're doing, listen, they're, they're not trying to like shake up the world. They're trying to be faithful to their Yahweh that they love. And they say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, we hear what you're saying, man. We can't do it because we have this friendship with God. We have relationship with him. We we love him and we can can only do what he asks us to do. We we can't do anything else. So so you do what you got to do, but this is what we got to do. We got to stand with Yahweh and we we can't worship your false gods. We're not doing it. He goes, you realize I'm going to throw you in the fire if you do this? And they're like, look, do what you got to do. Our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to do what he wants us to do. And so then we have this kind of powerful account of these people being thrown in the fire and surviving. And it's like, they didn't set out to become these like people who walk in flames. You know what they set out to do? To listen to their king. To listen to Yahweh. Their their God, whom they loved and believed and followed, they they were just doing one simple act of faithfulness, saying, we can only do what we know God wants us to do. We can't really do anything else. And yet now for for generations upon generations upon generations, we we, we herald the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego simply because they loved and did the simple thing that God asked them to do, and then God did what he wanted to do. He restores. He restores. God is a God of redemption. So here's what I want to say to us this morning, church, is that if we believe the gospel, that if we believe that Jesus takes our sin, he takes us as broken people, he resurrects us into new life and forgives even our continuing sin, and we we are able to walk in this beautiful new identity, then we are a reconciliation, restoring, rebuilding relationship people. This is messy, dirty, painful work. It is far simpler to just be mad at those who sin against us or to be ashamed uh, when we see those we've sinned against. It's far more simple to do that. And you just kind of, you know, you avoid, you switch churches, you avoid the family reunion, you get a divorce, you just do whatever you got to do to kind of dodge things and feel better about ourselves. If I just can see that person less, then maybe that feeling will go away. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, let us be a people who even though we deny and sin against each other, we rebuild because the gospel is what? That our sins have been paid for, that we can own them, that we can see your sin and we know that sin has been paid for so we can move toward each other knowing that our great mediator, 
Jesus Christ has paid for both of our sin, which makes me able to see mine and own it, for you to see yours and own it, and for us to be reconciled. That's not a conversation, church. It takes some time. Some of the most hard and most painful work that we will do in this lifetime is this work, the work of restoring broken relationship. Listen, new relationships, new people I don't know, that's super fun. Discovery, we get to know each other, but then we sin against each other. Oh man, we got to do the back work of like, oh, going to mend things and it's uncomfortable and maybe I was wrong and I see my shame and it, blah, Right? This is who we are. We are reconciling people. The dividing wall of hostility that existed between us is now torn down. Ephesians 2, right? 2, 14, 15. But man, that's painful work. So Jesus reminds, but Jesus restores. Jesus does the dirty work. Sitting around the fire, he builds the fire. He provides the fish. He provides the bread. He sits there and he initiates with Peter to rebuild broken relationship. And, and, and this is the limited earthly hours he has. He's sitting down on the seashore with a messy, prideful, denying Peter. Praise God that he pursues us. He reminds and he restores. Let's finish out this gospel, starting in verse 20 for our third section. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, uh, who is it that will betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about, what about this man? What about John? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord, church. So here's this last one. We have he reminds, we have that he restores, and last we have that he renews. He renews. And what we're getting at here is he's, he's kind of renewing and initiating Peter's call. He, he's trying to help Peter understand, look, you're worried about John and what's going to happen with John. You have to, you have to do what I've asked you to do. What, you know, what, what does it say here? Lord, uh, who is it going to betray you? Look at verse 22. If it, is, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So there's an irony in the kingdom, right? That we support each other, we love each other, that we lean on each other, we bear each other's burdens, and yet in some way, each person's individual relationship with God is completely up between them and the Lord. I cannot control your relationship with God, you cannot control my relationship with God. Sometimes you will get things, you will do things, you, 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 will, you will act in a way in the kingdom that I'm like, man, I want, can I, I, I want that. Can I have that life, Lord? And his answer is no. What is that to you? You follow me. The comparison game in the kingdom is a real, real thing, right? 
where you look around at the person who's got the spouse that you want or the kid that you want or the house that you want or the career that you want or the pulpit that you want or the book writing that you want or the, I mean, fill it in. And then we go, well, how come, how come he gets to, I, I want, I mean, yeah. And whenever we have that comparison thing going on, basically what Jesus is saying is, what is it to you? You follow me. Peter, you have a call on your life that you have to follow me. You do what I've called you to do, which then kind of pushes us back to the previous section that says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. A couple of notes there. We're caring and tending to the people of God as a priority. And secondarily, we are feeding his sheep. Not Brett's sheep, not Valley Bible's sheep. It is Jesus' sheep. It is his flock. I am under his authority. We as shepherds and pastors are to be people who follow Jesus and we are feeding his sheep, his food, which is primarily his word. So he renews, so he reminds, he restores, and he renews. He tells Peter, listen, Peter, I have a call on your life. Don't worry about what John's going to do. You do what I've called you to do. And sometimes those things are going to look very different. The giftings, the callings, all of those things will look very different from sometimes from neighbor to neighbor. Do not worry about what your neighbor is doing, meaning not that you're not to love him, not that you're not to pursue him, not that you're not to forgive him, but his life may look different than yours. And we are not promised all the things that our neighbor got will be given to us. And this is, this is the testament. If you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, you talk about the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, you talk about all the different ways in which the Spirit of God manifests itself through the life of a believer, it's going to look a little different as it comes through different people because God has different callings for you and different callings for me. Frankly, it's frustrating. I want to be able to just take a pastor and go, okay, just do the stuff that he does. And God says, nope, that's not how it works. And so we have to walk faithfully with him. We have to lean faithfully on him. So another way of saying it is his call is both universal. Come to me all who are weary, all who have sin, all who need rescue. Come to me and I will give you rest, he says. So the call is both universal and unique. So we get the same Jesus the same spirit, the same salvation, and yet the way that that plays itself out in your life may look really, really different than your neighbor. And let me tell you, sometimes that is really frustrating, right? Some of you will have to walk through vertigo. Some of you won't. Some of you will get cancer. Some of you won't. And we got to be real careful not to go like, well, you know, is it my sin? No, no, God's going to have different callings and different things you're going to have to walk in in all kinds of ways. Physical ailments, spiritual gifts, uh, poverty, uh, prosperity. Like we're all going to have different burdens to bear. And what we need to do is celebrate what's happening in our neighbor and rejoice that John is John and that Peter is Peter. And think about what God has done through our brothers, John and Peter. John composed this gospel in a way that Peter never could. The way that John has written to us about life and light in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter doesn't write like this. But we're going to see how Peter writes. We're going to jump into 1 Peter next week. And it's going to have a distinctly Peter feel to it. 
which is great. And Peter's story is not over, right? We hear about the different things that he does and some of his brashness and his personality. I love it. But I'm not Peter. I'm not John. God has unique callings for us, and may we celebrate and rejoice that the work of redemption is something that causes us and reminds us to remember, right? Reminds us to remember, that's redundant, but reminds us to remember what Jesus has done, which then drives us to be a people who restore relationship between each other. Like, we don't get to be the people who just walk away. No, we're people who rebuild, who give opportunity for rebuilding to happen. And then lastly, he, he renews and, and reminds about our callings. We all have different callings. So hear me, if you're here and you follow Jesus, you have a specific, unique calling that's going to have a very you flavor to it. And the church actually needs that. I need Peter to be Peter. I can't wait to meet Peter one day and say, brother, your foolishness at times, your brashness, and your faithfulness helped me endure the race. Thank you, John. Thank you for composing your gospel and the inspiration of the Spirit of God in the way that you did. What a blessing it has been for all of our lifetimes. Oh, Lord, thank you for how you work through the body of Christ. Let us remember who we are and whose we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we read about Peter and Jesus, it's, it's kind of astounding that of all the things and all the ways that, that you work, that, Lord, you, you sit on seemingly insignificant seashores at small breakfasts with people people who failed you, people who sin, people who make mistakes, and you are eager to restore. God, we need help here. I, I'm, I'm happy to be frustrated when people sin against me. Lord, would we be a people who are uh, hungry to restore, who are happy to give opportunity that relationship can be rebuilt? Lord, would we lay aside our selfishness and our shame, both sides of that, that we would not be self-protective because of our shame, our embarrassment because of our sin, and not be self-protective because of the way that we, we uh, have been sinned against and feel angry and justified. Lord, we lay all of that aside. Would we be a people who are eager to see you rebuild relationship? Would that be a testament of the gospel? That people, we, we, we might even say, I hated that person. I didn't like that person. We'd be people who years later could say, I love that person. We've been restored. God has done a miracle between us. Lord, would that be the testament of the church? That as we fail each other and sin against each other, that we rebuild and we restore union because of the gospel, because of what Jesus already has finished on the cross. Lord, help us to walk in the finished work of Jesus, we pray. Amen.